So the book of Titus, and this is known as the third pastoral epistle. You have 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, and they were written to encourage Timothy, who was trying to pastor a very large church there in Ephesus. And Timothy had been led to the Lord through the Apostle Paul. He was half Jewish and half Gentile. And so at the beginning of his ministry, he actually circumcised Titus because he was going to have a a hindrance of ministering to uh, the Jews. However, Titus was just 100% Gentile. And uh, when one point Paul brought Titus with him to Jerusalem, uh, boy, a whole schism broke out because they said that they brought Titus, this Gentile, into the temple, which was a lie, and, uh, and had quite a, a difficulty on that. But Titus is pastoring the church on an island called Crete. And uh, we're actually going to talk much more about that when we get down further in the letter. But uh, we'll show you here. Uh, where Crete is found. And um, it's there right below uh, Greece on your left and Turkey on your right. And um, it's there in the Mediterranean Sea. If the map went farther to the left, you would see Italy there. If the map went farther to the right, you would see Israel there. And uh, it's a very large island, about 160 miles long, anywhere from 7 to 35 miles wide. And a number of churches were set up there. Uh, In Acts chapter 2, we saw when the day of Pentecost fully came, and they began speaking in tongues, and it says, many heard them speak in their own language the great things of God. And one of the areas was Crete. There were Cretans there. And they heard um, these guys speak in tongues. They heard Peter preach the gospel. And no doubt some of these guys got saved. And they went back to Crete and began to proclaim what they knew. Now when Paul and Titus came on the scene and began to establish the churches there in Crete, um, there was a lot of problems. Um, And we're going to be going into that as we go through the letter. But uh, Crete was um, a sailor Haven, okay, and if you go back to the history, um, it was a sailor community. And every time the world changed hands, whether it was the, the Greeks or the Romans or whoever, they would come and park their vessels there at Crete. And Crete was to supply all the prostitutes and all the alcohol and all, you know, the party central. And so the people that lived on that island were people that were immoral people, basically, that had learned how to cater to the immoral needs of the sailors in the various um, stages of, of history. And because of that, there was a certain type of person that Crete created, and basically a dishonest person, lazy people, immoral people, drunkards. And uh, when the gospel came... Uh, It was a powerful thing, changed lives, but yet it was having to fight against the culture of that day. And Titus is trying to pastor a church who are living in this kind of culture. And just like Timothy was in Ephesus getting quite depressed, Titus was getting quite depressed trying to pastor um, 
there in Crete. And praise God, these guys got depressed because as uh, far as I'm concerned, these are three of the most important epistles for us to know how to run the churches. And so it's uh, very encouraging that these letters are here in our hand. So the book of Titus um, is thought to be written at the same time as 1 Timothy. So he wrote the letter, first letter to Timothy and then wrote a letter off to Titus right around A.D. 64 to 67. Now, the letter begins, Paul. And again, that's a little unusual for us because we usually write, dear whoever we're writing to. And if you want to know who the letter's from, of course, we can look on the outside of the envelope and take a pretty good guess. Uh, but if not, we've got to look to the end of the letter where we say, you know, sincerely, love, whatever, and then we write our names. Well, actually, they had a much smarter way of doing it. They told you right up front who was writing the letter. It's Paul. I'm the guy writing the letter. Your dear son, your husband, your friend, whoever it is, they're letting you know uh, right up front. And then secondly, they would address the reader. So, hey, this is your husband I'm writing to, my dear wife, whoever, so you have that. And then thirdly is the greeting. And that was the way they wrote the letter in the day, and I think it's actually a superior way. Uh, So they would write who's writing the letter, to whom they're writing to, and then there would be a greeting uh, that would come thirdly, and then the contents uh, of the letter. We all learn in Titus chapter 3, verse 13, that Zanus and Apollos, who were companions of the Apostle Paul, were the ones to carry this letter to Titus and uh, bring it to him, and also understand that it would be publicly read wherever it went. So yes, it was a personal letter to uh, Paul's son in the faith, who he led to the Lord and, and went on his missionary journeys and discipled him. But it was also for public use, that everybody would understand that what he was writing to uh, Titus was to be read to the whole church. And so when you start reading the letter, you're going, boy, that's pretty formal <laughs> uh, to address his son in the face, somebody so close to him. Well, you've got to understand, it was written in a formal fashion because he knew that the letter was going to be a publicly read letter. And so he starts off, Paul. Now, the first thing that would catch the eye of the reader of this day is that is a Gentile name. And we know that Paul which is a Greek word that means little, uh, was not his original name. a matter of fact, if you go back into the life of Paul, you discover his original actual name was Saul. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. And if you remember, the very first king of Israel was also from the tribe of Benjamin. This tall, good-looking guy by the name of Saul. And even though he was rejected by God, yet the tribe of Benjamin didn't have a whole lot to be proud of. If you look at the the history of the tribe of Benjamin, at one point, the whole tribe almost became completely homosexual. And uh, the leather leaven tribes had to come down and virtually wipe it out. Uh, There was hardly anybody left. Um, God ordered that all the other people from the other tribes would take the women and intermarry and raise up kids to their dead husband's name, according to the law. But because they so despised them because of their immorality, they wouldn't do it. However, the tribe of Judah did. 
And the tribe of Judah and tribe of Benjamin basically became one tribe. And, uh, but if you look through the history, the Benjamites didn't really have a, another figure that stood out powerfully outside of this guy who was Saul, although he was, a dra- he was rejected. And so that was a, it was a very famous name among the Benjamites, but it was also making a statement. My son's going to be like a king. My son's going to be a head and, sh- a head and uh, shoulders taller and, and bigger and greater than everybody else. And it was rather a prideful name. And um, we know that his parents were very wealthy. And they were actually had the ability to buy a, a Roman citizenship. That would be like today if you had an extra $30 million to buy a citizenship. These guys were incredibly wealthy to be able to do that. But once they bought the... Um, Roman citizenship, it was be able to be passed on to their children. And boy, to be able to be a Roman citizen, according to the Romans, you were equal to the gods in Greek mythology terminology. And you were uh, invincible. And you had a free pass to go anywhere in the world you wanted and to be revered and treated uh, with dignity, unlike most people in the Roman civilization. And uh, his parents sent him at a young age to the boarding school, as you normally would do. And, of course, his parents were devout Jews. They wanted him to go to Jerusalem. Boy, what a great place uh, to send your kid. It's radical that we have a Bible college in Jerusalem. And you can actually go uh, there for a semester and study the Bible right there in Jerusalem and tour around all of Israel and go to the various sites and do some archaeological studies and so forth. It's a pretty interesting thing. But in his day, they sent him to Jerusalem to the elite school, the school of Gamaliel. And uh, it would have been the most outrageously expensive school and only the richest and most elite kids uh, of prominent status would have been able to be there. So the high priest sons and, uh, you know, the governor's sons or whoever was in the Sanhedrin, uh, you would have had to have been somebody and you would have had to have a lot of money to have been sent to that school. And so the apostle Paul, um, this young boy named Saul, was raised up in the who's who of uh, the Jewish nation. And we see that right out of college, he was already either employed or definitely a part of the hierarchy. Because we quickly come to the first story where Saul appears in Acts chapter 8, where Christianity now is spreading. And they had appointed seven deacons to oversee the distribution of food to the Hellenistic uh, women, the, the widows that were in need. And this guy Stephen was confronted and he began to convert people to Christianity, they grabbed him, they took him into the courtroom where the Sanhedrin, the elite 72 leaders of Jerusalem would be. And the Apostle Paul was there, not necessarily as a Sanhedrin, but he was there in some elite status. Um, He said that he was a Pharisee. And he even said he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And so it seems like he held some kind of position. We don't know what that position was. 
But uh, the elite people knew him, and he pretty much had uh, a blank check when it came to what he wanted to do. But he was there as um, Stephen stood up, and he began to proclaim the gospel to these guys. And he got to the point where all through the Old Testament, they hated everyone who came in the name of the Lord. And they persecuted them. And then he said, as your hearts are hard to this day, you can't hear the testimony now of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Well, when they heard this very convicting word, they said, out with him. And they seized him and a mob sort of carried Stephen out and they would begin to stone him to death. And it says there that this guy, Saul, who later would be the Apostle Paul, was was on coat duty. Hey, put your robe over here so you can really throw that rock hard, you know. And he was watching everybody's coats and was there when the very first Christian martyr was being stoned to death. And so that would, as far as the timeline would mean, that Saul was in town studying at the university there why Jesus was out in the streets, why Jesus was in the temple, why Jesus was in uh, the Mount of Olives, why Jesus was crucified. Now, the Apostle Paul doesn't tell us that he walked by and saw Jesus on the cross or anything, but he definitely was in town when it was going on, which is a pretty radical uh, thought process to realize what, uh, how clueless he was, so focused in on what he was doing that he missed this amazingly uh, great event or doesn't tell us to what degree it experienced it. But he does tell us that when he saw Stephen dying and there he heard the same words that Jesus had said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, that he was pierced deeply to the heart. It affected him. But his his heart got hardened. And at that point after that, He set out to stomp out Christianity. And he had all kinds of power within Jerusalem to be sort of the sheriff to stomp out Christianity. And he began to arrest people right and left, dragging them into prison, beating them, having them even put to death. And he was uh, had special letters to go all the way to Damascus, okay, which is Syria, guys, the city of, uh, in Syria there, all the way to Damascus to find the Christians there and to arrest them, chain them up, and drag them back to Jerusalem to be tried and sentenced, to at least be put in prison, if not be put to death. And he was on his way to Damascus when a light shone, he heard a voice, he was knocked to the ground, he was blinded through it, but he heard the voice that said, Saul, Saul, Why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you? He said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And he was blinded. He went on into Damascus, so he wasn't too far from there. And for three days, he just fasted and prayed. And the Lord spoke to him. And and this guy, Ananias, came, laid hands on him. Scales fell off his eyes. He began to see again. And immediately, he began to preach the gospel. We know from there, he went three years into Arabia. And whether he just was getting revelation from God or just spending time rereading the Old Testament uh, to see Jesus, we don't know. But after that three years, he ended up going back to his original hometown uh, in Tarsus. And he was there, and if you do the timeline, for a time of his conversion to when he began to preach the gospel, 
it was 14 years. Three years in Arabia, he was back in Tarsus for 11 years. And what he did during that time, we don't know. But Barnabas, who heard about him, needed a teacher and heard that he was this real Christian guy. The apostles didn't believe it. They thought it was a trick at first. The Christians thought this is Paul's trick to become an inside man, uh, you know, a secret double agent uh, in Christendom to find out who's the real bigwigs and to try to stomp out Christianity. Nobody trusted him. So Barnabas, he had a real sense. He was, it was a real conversion and sort of hard to fake it for 14 years. And uh, went and got him and brought him to Antioch because there was such a huge revival, uh, move of God's spirit, just so many thousands of people getting saved that they needed more teachers. And he taught there for a season. They were having a little leadership retreat. Uh, some guys came up from Jerusalem and they were there in prayer, prophets and teachers. And the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Saul and Barnabas for the work that I've called them to do. And that's in Acts chapter 13. And then they began their first missionary journey, which would be like going from here to Catalina Island (laughs) to L.A. and back. You know, we often think of Paul's missionary journey as going to the other side of the world. It really wasn't that far. And uh, second and third ones got a little farther, but not that much farther. And um, so he began his missionary journeys. And really, uh, to go into more detail, we'd have to study the whole New Testament uh, because of all the great things that that the Lord did through his life. But uh, he led people to the Lord, had evangelistic team put together, and uh, eventually went through Asia Minor, where God said, you cannot Turkey today. You can't preach the gospel. He went on over to Macedonia and preached the gospel through there, came back and camped out in Asia Minor there in Turkey today in a place called Ephesus, where he stayed for three years teaching at the university and preaching Bible studies every day. They have a couple hours of, um, you know, where they take a siesta in the middle of the day and he would have Bible studies there. And people got saved and would go back to their hometowns. And all over Asia Minor, churches started, not by the Apostle Paul going there, but by these people getting saved, discipled, and then going back home. And all these college kids and uh, starting uh, churches. So he was able to reach Asia Minor uh, in that way. Somewhere along the line, he ended up having a missionary journey where he went to Crete. And uh, many believe it's probably on the third missionary journey. Um, But... The book of Acts doesn't give us any details on that. So it was obviously an amazing thing that happened there. There were a number of churches over the island. And in the book of Acts, there's no mention of it. Which tells us that when we get to heaven, we're going to have a fun time looking in the library at all the radical details of the missionary journeys. That's not even to talk about the 11 apostles. What about Peter's ministry? We don't know that much about it. Or Thomas or Bartholomew. All of these guys, they went around various parts of the world and no doubt had as many miracles and as many exciting things happen in their ministries as well that uh, sort of distorted through a historical record. We have a little pieces here and there but not in any kind of detail like the book of Acts. 
And so we really realize that in the book of Acts is the word of God to us. And even all the missionary experiences are to speak to us, not trying to give us a, a real history of what happened uh, in detail. That's going to happen when we get to heaven. But to speak into our lives of how we are to be missionaries. Well, there we see in chapter 13 when Paul began going out to his missionary journeys that along the way he began to become an apostle and his name changed to Paul. Uh, probably called Saul when he went to the synagogues and Paul when he went to the Gentiles um, because that was a name that, uh, again, would identify with his ministry called the Apostle to the Gentiles. That's what his ministry was uh, called to. Well, it says there in in verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of God. Now, that word bondservant in the Greek is the word doulos. And as one uh, commentary tried to point out, there is not an explanation in the English to how degrading of a term this was in the Greek culture. You were the lowliest of lowliest slaves. You were better than a piece of trash and not much more. And if you were sick and the doctor said it would take $15 to get you the medicine, they would just get rid of you. They wouldn't put any money into you. They just let you die uh, like an like a old sick dog or something. And so, in the Greek way of looking at this, this was just an amazing term by him saying, I am the lowliest of lowliest of lowliest servants. However, in the Hebrew, the word bond servant, those two things together, bond and servant, speak very clearly of an of a experience that happened in the Old Testament. Now, you've got to understand something when you're reading the Old Testament. And that is not everything in the, whole, in the Old Testament God is inventing or God is endorsing. A lot of things in the Old Testament, God out of concession is allowing because it was so inbred in the culture. But he would slowly bend them to the way he wanted them to be. So he, he saw that this Hebrew culture who had been slaves for 430 years in Egypt corrupted by every kind of idolatry you could imagine. And all of a sudden, these guys that are uneducated and meant to be uneducated, unorganized, meant to be unorganized, because there were so many millions of them, they outnumbered the Egyptians in order to keep control of them. They wanted them unorganized, they wanted them undisciplined, and they wanted them uneducated. They didn't want them to be militarily trained so they could control them. And so when they came out of Egypt, they were a mess. And they had all kinds of practices. And God began to bend them in the direction he wanted to go. But as we all know, you can only bend somebody so far before you snap the branch and it breaks. And so a lot of these practices, for example, having more than one wife or slavery. And there's other issues. God permitted it. But when you look at how he said it had to be done, eventually it wasn't worth doing anymore. 
And so when it came to slavery, for example, um, he said, okay, if you're going to have somebody as a slave. Now, we know as we read into the Jewish commentaries that their interpretation of it was far more detailed. But simply in the scriptures, and let's look there. It's found in Exodus 21, verse 1 through 6, and Deuteronomy 15, verse 12 through 18. Let's look at that Deuteronomy 15 together. And we'll just look at verses 12 through 17. So hold your finger there in Titus and go all the way back to the Old Testament, to the book of Deuteronomy. And there in verse 12... It says, if your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you and serves you, notice, six years, then in the seventh year, you shall let him go free from you. And you will send him away free from you. You shall not let him go away empty-handed. You shall supply him liberally from your flock from your threshing floor, from your wine press, from what the Lord had blessed you with, you shall give him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. Now, if it happens that he says to you, I will not go away from you because he loves you and and your house since he prospers with you, then you shall take an owl, thrust it through his ear to the door and shall be your servant forever Also to your female servants, you shall do likewise. So you can see the tenor of the servanthood here. Uh, It's very possible that he says, I love it here. So it's not some oppressive, evil slavery as we have known in this country and in, unfortunately, many countries of the world today where somebody is basically treated like a piece of property and a piece of trash and they're abused and, you know, um, I think probably one of the most horrific things of slavery in our country is they'll take a man and a wife and say, uh, the man's going to go, you know, over there and the wife's going to go this way and the kids are going to be taken away and sold to this guy and and just the constant splitting up of the the family and so forth. Um, In the Jewish culture, that could not happen. Okay. So the idea, and as again, as we read the Jewish commentaries, it basically gave different scenarios. First of all, not anybody could own slaves. You had to be approved by the elders of the city. Now, remember, in the Jewish culture, the religious system was the civil system. Um, And so the most honorable, godly men of a community only could own slaves. Now, who would become slaves? They gave a list. Typically, it was somebody who was a drunkard. And their drunkenness caused them to beat their wife, abuse their kids, not plant their fields. So the weeds are growing up around the house. The fields are being overtaken uh, by the weeds. They're not getting planted. It's, it's, there's no harvest coming. And they're becoming a burden on the community because they have no finances. Even though they have a perfectly good piece of land and, and water and, and the ability, and he drinks away the income. And, and at that point, he can be taken. Now his property and house and all that can't be taken away. But what it would be done is rented out. And that money that would be rented out 
would be his at the end. Okay, that would be his, it'd be a big chunk of money he would get later on, but that's a whole other issue. Now, he would go to the slave owner, but the slave owner was actually a discipler. He was teaching this guy when to get up, how to work hard, how to be a husband, how to be a father. And this guy would go from somebody who was basically incorrigible to an honorable person. And often he would realize, you know, if I go back on my own, I'm afraid I'll become this lazy, drunken bum again. And for my wife's sake and my kids love it here and everything I have and more I have, I w- I, that I would want, I have here. I, I love it. And basically, because of the relationship, again, it's almost like this guy becomes his son. That's the, that's the relationship they have. So it's not some oppressive slave owner to a slave, but this guy begins to treat him almost like being a father he never had to help him become a, a, a profitable person in the society. Now, at the end of six years, and again, according to the Jewish writings, they actually just had to store up his wages. So basically, at the end of six years, he had six years' wages handed to him, all in one lump sum. In other words, when he left as a slave, he left wealthy. So when he went back to his house and back to his farm, which would have been sold on that understanding that at the seventh year, it's his, it's to be back to his, he would go back with a large chunk of money to, you know, get the new plow, to get the new oxen, to get some laborers to help get his place fixed back up and, you know, furnish for the house, whatever he needed. He went back in a, in a, in a grandiose style. Again, there wasn't an oppressiveness to it. And he understood that from day number one. So he's a slave, but he also understands he's going to be getting this big chunk of money at the end of the six years. So there was always that sense and that understanding of hope and of even maybe a joyful anticipation. Hey, once the six years is over, I'm going to, you know, I went from poverty and, you know, drunkenness and, and abusive life. And maybe a year into it, he realizes, wow, you know, this is hard, but I'm really growing here. And not only that, but in the six years when I'm ready to go, I'm going to have, I'm going to be pretty set, probably better off than I've ever been. So again, um, I really want to, to clarify that. But at the end of the six years, when he's ready to go back, he can say, and he has to say this, I love my master. And then often he would have to say, because I love my family and I prosper here, I will not go. And at that point, his master would put a hole through his ear and put an earring in there And that earring would distinguish him as a bond slave. And let me tell you something. It was a high status in the community. Because basically it was telling everybody he chose to remain in a place where he would be for certain profitable and submitted. And so you think about that when somebody saw him as a bond slave, you had the choice to go free, have a big bundle of money, have your own house. I mean, you could, you could have left setting up with a really good setup or you could remain a 
a servant there in that household. Again, uh, when we talk about servanthood, it was more of you know living and being a, a partner uh, with dad is the way the relationship usually developed. And um, But because you knew there would be a good chance of you going back into a lesser lifestyle, you chose to remain a slave. That became a very admirable and noble position um, in this society. Now, what's Paul modeling for us and saying to us? That's the way we become profitable, isn't it? As we submit ourselves unto our master, our Lord Jesus Christ. As we realize that our flesh can get away from us and go crazy and and destroy our marriage, destroy our kids, destroy our lives, destroy our health, destroy opportunities for God's plan for our life. And we just go from A plan to B plan to C plan to D plan. And, you know, man, we're just destroying. You know, time is brutal, isn't it? Um, You know, you can't redeem yesterday. You can't redeem one second. And boy, your life is clicking by. And all of a sudden, here you are in your 20s, 30s, 40s, and your life is fruitless. It's not where it needs to be. And there comes a point where you, in your heart, volitionally, in your will, there is a deep surrender to Christ that says, your way and only your way, I give myself to you. You are my Lord, my God, my Savior, my Master. I am your son, your daughter. I am your child. I give myself to you obediently as you will. And when you make that choice in your heart, and you make that kind of surrender in your heart, you will find yourself being profitable and fruitful. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Boy, I know that to be true. Now, I don't think I always believe that to be true. I, you know, come on. I mean, isn't that a little bit of an overstatement? Isn't that a little bit of an exaggeration? Isn't that, a, and you realize that we can do a lot of stuff, but stuff that's really fruitful and eternal really causes a blessing in other people's life. It is by the grace of God only. And I have learned and am still learning that in me, no good thing dwells at all, zero. But as we abide in Christ, that we become fruitful as we submit ourselves to him. And by the way, that's really the definition of true saving faith. Because even a demon can say, well, I believe in Jesus. I used to be his angel in heaven before he got kicked out. I mean, he believes he exists, if that's what we're talking about. And somebody, Oh, I believe in Jesus. I believe he exists. That doesn't, even a demon did. No, 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 you don't understand. I really emotionally am stirred up at the name of Jesus. Well, isn't, that, isn't a demon? At the name of Jesus, it says in James 2, that he shudders, that he trembles. He has an emotional reaction to the name of Jesus. But does that mean he's saved? No. What does that demon not have? Can that demon submit himself to Jesus Christ and say, your will be done? Is that the heart of a demon? Quite the opposite. That demon says, I believe you exist. I'm afraid of you. I shudder at your name. But I am not going to do what you want. I'm not going to do your will. And so true saving faith isn't when I believe Christianity is the right way. I believe Jesus Christ is the, the only way of salvation. Although you believe all the right stuff, that's wonderful. But that doesn't mean you're saved. 
True saving faith is when in your will you have a deep surrender and your life is surrendered to Christ. And we see it now in your life. Jesus said, why do you say, Lord, Lord? Why are you calling me your master and you don't do what I say? It's just not true. If I am your Lord, then you'll do what I say. When I say jump, you'll jump. And so again here, that's the the heart of somebody who's truly submitted to God. You'll see it by that surrender of life. And so Paul says here that I'm Paul, I'm this little nobody name, this Gentile is who I identify myself. I'm the apostle of the Gentiles and I am a bondservant of God. I've submitted myself unto God as his servant. And then he says the next thing, he says, an apostle. Now, when it comes to translating the Bible or any, any work, you often will come to a word that has no word in another language. So in this case, we come to the Greek word and we say, what's the English word? There is no English word. You can have a group of words that explains that word. This word literally means a delegate who is sent on behalf of someone. That's what the word apostle means. You could reduce it down to say a sent one. But it doesn't really sound like a a title, and this is supposed to be a title. So instead of translating, what they do is they do what's called transliteration. And that's taking, in this instance, the Greek letter and saying, what's the closest English letter? So you have the alpha in the Greek, and you take it down, and you got an A. And then you go letter for letter. And then when you're done, you have this thing in English, and, and you say, how do you say that? I don't know, apostle. How do you say it, you know? I think the T should be a little more silent, you know? Say apostle, okay. And it's apostle. That's the way, that's what it is. Well, what is that? Then we have to explain it. So we've actually created a new word in the English. And so the word apostle, it means one who is sent. But now as we study in context in the New Testament, it's not just somebody who is sent out like missionaries are today, but it's somebody who had direct revelation from Jesus Christ and was sent with that direct revelation. And today, with the New Testament being canonized, we have no new revelation. We have illumination on the revelation. But we don't have new revelation. And, you know, the Mormons come out and they say, we have a new revelation here in the Pearl of Great Price or the Doctrines of Covenants or the Book of Mormon. And Joseph Smith said, oh, I, you know, this angel told me and gave me some glasses called the Urim and the Thum, and I put them on and I could read the Egyptian hieroglyphic and show me where the golden tablets were. And, and I got this new revelation. It's the Book of Mormons. And, um, and so when somebody comes up with a new revelation, you need to be afraid <laughs> because they have just come up with a different religion. And so we really wouldn't call somebody an apostle today Because, again, it's those that were connected to Jesus Christ. Now, you say, but hold it. The Apostle Paul wasn't one of the 12 disciples. Right. And as you read in the epistles, Paul had to constantly defend this title of an apostle because of that very fact. And he says, man, I was an apostle born out of due time. 
But he makes it very clear that he received the gospel that he was given by direct revelation from Jesus Christ. Again, maybe that's what happened in Arabia. Um, We do have instances, again, as we go through the epistles, where the Lord spoke to him very clearly. And again, there's others that were with the Apostle Paul that were also called apostles. So outside of that, we come into the New Testament. We wouldn't claim. So you say, well, hold it. God's given to the church apostles, first of all. That's right. We do have apostles in the church today. And Apostle Paul is one of them. And Peter. And James. Okay? Those are our apostles. Well, in in Acts 2.42, it says, And they adhered to the apostles' doctrines. That's right. That's what we're doing here tonight. So tonight, we are having a ministry of the apostles. That is the Apostle Paul. Now, when people are sent out to go start new works... You could say, in essence, they're apostles, but we wouldn't do that because of the connotation of taking the New Testament in context. And so we simply call them missionaries or one who's sent on a mission. Um, And so the mission trips and so forth. But uh, again, it gets a little bit difficult. And so with the Apostle Paul, we see in Acts chapter 9, verse 15 and 16, you guys can go ahead and turn over there if you want we see that he was directly sent out by Jesus Christ through divine revelation. In chapter 9, verse 15 and 16, But the Lord said to him, Go, this is when he's talking to Ananias, For he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings, and children of Israel, For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my sake. So he is one who's going to go on my behalf and bear my name. And then he said to the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. And in Acts chapter 22, the Apostle Paul now tells us specifically. He says, starting in verse 17. Now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem, was praying in the temple, that I was in a trance. In Acts 22, verse 18, And I saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I am prison. Beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by the consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then he said to me, this is again Jesus speaking, Depart, for I will send you, there it is, the word apostle, I'm apostolizing you. I'm sending you out far from here to the Gentiles. So Jesus Christ, by direct revelation, sent him. Thus he is an apostle, uh, not under the earthly minister of Jesus Christ, but by divine revelation. Again, in Ephesians chapter 3, he states that very clearly, that this gospel he received directly by Jesus Christ, which was given during this dispensation of time. Well, going back to Titus chapter 1 there in verse 1. So Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of, here's two other Greek translation, transliterations, Jesus. That's the Hebrew word, Yahshua, Yah, God, Shua, salvation, God of salvation. We say it in the English, how? 
Joshua. It's the same name. And so this is the one, it's a very common name, this one who is salvation, Christ, that's the Greek. The Hebrew transliteration of that is Messiah. And so uh, it literally means the one who is anointed, the chosen one. Jesus, our salvation, he is the chosen one which through which our salvation would come through. And here, notice this, he says, according to the faith of God's elect. Now, the word faith can either be a verb or a noun. So when you say faith and believing, do you believe in Jesus? Have you put your trust in Jesus? But then on the other hand, it's a noun. The, the Christian faith, the Muslim faith, the Catholic faith, you're using it as a noun. And here this is saying, according to the faith as a noun, and the right faith is going to be, for sure, those who are God's elect will have the true faith. And then he clarifies this by saying, and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness. So first of all, he's saying that those who really are God's elect are going to get the right faith. Um, Again, you you see this as you're trying to witness to people. It amazes me as I'm talking to people and I'm telling them the absolute truth. If Jesus Christ were standing right in front of them, he would be saying word for word exactly what I am telling them. I'm giving them the exact truth to heal them and give them eternal life. And one person will just be so mad at you, they want to spit on you. They're so mad. I was on the plane leaving uh, Nairobi, Kenya. And uh, I was there by the window and uh, Rob Salvato on the aisle. And and this girl comes and sits right between us. And we start talking to her. And she was a a doctor there from Sweden going to try to help out some of the AIDS patients and stuff. A very uh, good-hearted girl. And, um, and so I began saying, well, did you get, get to look at some of the, the animals and so forth? I didn't get to go do that, but, um, oh, yeah, I got to go and go on a little safari. And isn't it amazing, those creatures? And, oh, yes. And, you know, um, well, how, do you, how do you think all of those different types of creatures got there, you know? And uh, just began to talk to her about the Lord. And she, she began to say, well, you know, I'm not sure. I just really don't know. Um, and she didn't, interesting enough, believe in evolution. Uh, most scientists in Europe have given up evolution a long time before us in America have. So she said, uh, yeah, I know somehow they were created. And I said, well, by who? I, I have no idea. Well, by a God. You know what? It's like this. I don't care. (laughs) I don't care if I believe somebody made it, but whoever made it, I don't care. I don't care to know who it is. I don't care to know what they did or how they did it. It just is. And it just dumbfounded me to say, okay, you know somebody created this and you have no interest whatsoever to try to discover who that creator could be. And I, you know, tried to push the issue to try to explain to her. You can know who the true God is. And she had zero spiritual hunger. And that's as far as it went. 
And uh, people who are truly called unto salvation, they do have spiritual hunger. And it's wonderful when you're sharing the Lord with somebody and they're like going, oh, you know, this is exactly what I need to hear. Tell me more, tell me more. And they're just like a big vacuum, you know, trying to, they can't suck the information out of you quick enough. They're, they're just, they're, you're scratching an itch that's been there their whole life. And you're just, and it's so wonderful because, you know, you can't tell them enough. You know, you, you just, I'll talk until I lose my voice. I mean, this is wonderful to have somebody so hungry for the things of God. And so those who are God's elect, and of course, in particular, um, he's referring back to his apostleship. That he was called an apostle by Jesus Christ. He is God's elect as an apostle. So not, he didn't make himself an apostle, but God made him an apostle according to this Christian faith, the true faith. Now in 1 Corinthians 1.1, 1, 1, and he says this in almost all his letters, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. He makes it very clear in Galatians 1 verse 1. Paul, an apostle, notice this, sounds like he's even a little bit irritated, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Any questions? You know, um, he makes it very clear. I did not come up with this. I did not try to give myself this elevated position. I didn't try to give myself this title so you would, you know, not question me, um, This was 100% God's idea. And of course, if you go back and look at Paul's conversion, you realize it really was God's idea. Um, And he was as far away as you could go from being somebody who would be a candidate to become a Christian. Um, At the very other end of the spectrum. And the Lord stopped him and spoke the word and brought him unto himself. And, And so... You know, I have four kids, and I was there when they were all born into the world. I'm not sure why I was there when they were being born into the world. But uh, I was there because that was a politically correct thing to do. I would have rather been out in the lobby, you know, eating a hamburger or something, going, oh, it's a boy, yeah, I'll look through the glass in a little bit. I want you to clean it up and everything. But anyway, that's just me. Um, <laughs> but it was a joy taking them home from the hospital. That's when I enjoyed them. And holding him there in my arms. But I have to admit, seeing somebody get born again is, to me, a hundred times greater joy. To see somebody come out of darkness and then see the light turned on. Woohoo, you know? To see them come out of the power of the clutches of Satan and to come unto the Lord. And then to see them grow. You know? Uh, it's just radical to, to see people now in our church who are leaders and have been leaders for years and have led up other leaders and led people to the Lord. And, and, you know, I was there when they were, you know, ready to punch me because they were so mad that I was sharing the gospel with them. And just like the Apostle Paul, and then as they get broken through the preaching of the word and then they submit themselves to the Lord. And um, it's just, and to see them now, years later, grown in the Lord and being so fruitful in the Lord. There's, there's no greater joy for me than that right there. And um, so here, again, he's saying that the true faith, it comes because you are God's elect. 
And I have learned and have been reminded of this as of late. You can't get it if you're not one of God's elect. It's that simple. And you can try to convince, persuade, every bit of logic, every bit of passion and zeal. But if God doesn't call them into themselves, Jesus said in John 6, no man can come unto me unless the Father draws him. And it's absolutely true. We need to go into the world and preach the gospel to all creation, all creatures on this planet, to every person who will listen. We need to preach the gospel passionately. And, but we have to realize that it's up to the Lord to draw them unto himself. And then he ends with this statement here in verse 1, to the acknowledgement of the truth. Now this is the theme of this book. The acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness. Let me say it this way. If you got the true faith, it will bring you to godliness. Right doctrine will bring a right living. A true godly doctrine will lead you to a true godly lifestyle. And that's really the proof in the pudding. Where the rubber meets the road. If you have this belief system and you're living an ungodly life, your belief system is wrong. But a true doctrine, correct, right doctrine, will lead you to a life like Jesus's, holy and true and righteous. We see in the book of Jude, verse 4, he says, A certain men have crept in unnoticed into the church who long ago were marked out for their condemnation. Ungodly men. These guys don't live holy lives. Who turned the grace of God into lewdness or licentiousness. In other words, the grace of God basically gives you a blank check to live however you want. Because God will forgive you and there's a lot of grace and it doesn't really matter in the end. You know, you're chosen. It doesn't really matter how you live because you're chosen. And so it's, it's a warpness of this beautiful gospel of grace and the beautiful doctrine of election. They twist it into this thing that gives themselves and everybody who listens to them basically a license to live how you want. And they deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. How do they deny him? Because they're living this ungodly life saying, I'm following Jesus. <laughs> if you're following Jesus, you're going to look like Jesus. You're going to talk like Jesus. You're going to walk like Jesus. That's the whole point. Christians. It literally means little Christ. In other words, when they called them Christians in Acts chapter 11, it was a put down. They were trying to insult them. You're just like Jesus. Yeah, thanks. Okay, I'll call myself then that. That's good. I like that. Thank you. That's a, to me, that was a compliment. I know you meant it as an insult, but I'm complimented by that. And so that's the whole point. If it doesn't look like Jesus, guys, I don't know what your doctrine is, but it's false doctrine. And as we're going to see here in this church in Crete, they basically said, this is who I am. I know that I'm ungodly. I know I'm sinful. I know I'm weak and lazy and I'm living this immoral life. But hey, this is just who I am. And he's going to come back in this letter saying, That is not who you are. 
And the power of Christ is great enough to help you live a Christian life even in Crete. Even in Crete, you can walk like Jesus walked. Even in an ungodly place where there's drunken sailors and prostitutes and just an immoral life has ran through a hundred generations. I understand that. It's soaring through your veins. It's in your DNA. It's in your mental processes. I understand that. But God's spirit is greater. And it's not an option. It's expected of every believer to walk just like Jesus. In 1 Timothy, he had the same issues in Ephesus. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, he says this, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to, notice, the knowledge of what? The truth. And in John eight thirty one and 32, Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, If you abide in my word, and you are my disciples indeed. Or the word abide means continue. Um, It's, again, like the branch into the vine. In other words, you're living in the word. You are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall what? It'll make you free. You're not going to be bound up in these vices anymore. You're not going to be bound up in this ungodliness anymore. As you are living in God's word, and God's word is living in you, you will come to the place that you live that Christian life, walking and talking, um, just like Jesus. That's the theme of the book. And we're going to talk about a whole lot of other things, but that's where it's going to end up uh, at the end, having explained that whole concept. Let's pray here tonight. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we thank you again as we have an in-depth look here in the book of Titus, that we would turn over as many rocks as we can and and shuffle things up as much as we can to take a look at all of the truths, line upon line, not only at words, but the tenses of the words and partial parts of the words, and that we would discover all the truth that you have for us. And Lord, we just lay our lives before you here tonight as we are letting the word examine us as we examine the word. For many here tonight, they've been pierced to the heart. You said as we hide your word in our hearts that we wouldn't sin against you. But you also said it's a light unto where our feet are right now as well as a light into the path where we're heading. And as you turn the light on tonight right where we're at, we sense, Lord, that you're speaking to some hearts. That you're talking to them about some issues here tonight in their own lives. Issues of godliness, issues of holiness. And just right now, as we're here tonight, just pour out your heart before the Lord. God, have I really surrendered myself to you? Do I just say, Lord, Lord, are you you really my Lord? Am I saying you're my Savior because I want that fire insurance without really living a daily submitted life to you? Lord, forgive me. As Peter said, we want to make our calling and our election sure by adding to our faith a godly life. Lord, take us now, Lord, in your hands. As we're here tonight, Lord, we willingly want you to do all the heart surgery you need to do. Do it, Lord. 
By your great grace, do it. In Jesus' precious name. And everyone said, Amen.